You're listening to the Business of Pharmacy podcast with me, your host, Mike Kelzer. Maria, for those who haven't come across you online, introduce yourself and tell our listeners what we're talking about today. My name is Maria Bezecki. Since 2011, uh, I've been CEO and founder of Fertility Care Calgary. Today, we would uh, like to focus on how I was able to diversify my career um, as a way of having some career protection and also offering more of a work satisfaction perspective, something that was enjoyable and would provide service to patients. First of all, you're up in Canada and I'm in Michigan. I'm about a third of the way up Michigan. Yeah, we're kind of crazy living here with the snow, but we know that anybody north of us is like really crazy because it just keeps getting worse the farther we go. And so with you at your latitude, way up from where we are, you probably had to get to work in snowshoes today, correct? <laughs> yeah, that's that's a, a really good uh, imagination that you have. Uh, it's not true. <laughs> it's not true. Why not? not You're true. further north. Why doesn't it just keep getting crappier the further north you go? Yeah, I think it starts doing that uh, a little bit for, further up than us. We're actually uh, pretty close to the border here, but um, you know we're we're really close to the Rocky Mountains. So yeah, there is a lot of snow, but uh, we're probably not a whole lot different than you from a weather perspective. We've got people that go to wherever they're up in the UP, and they just get bombarded. Do you think part of that is because they're in the UP with the lakes and things like that? It doesn't necessarily get terrible every latitude you're going up north? Yeah, I think it probably depends on, you know, things like the amount of humidity in the air and, you know, how how uh, far you're going up, um, you know, getting closer um, to the border. That's certainly going to change things a bit. It might be a northern Michigan thing versus just Canada all the way up. It might be. All right. So, Maria, still picking on Canada then. <laughs> like 10 years ago, before... Obamacare and all the governmental stuff that seems to be growing, people would always say, all right, Canadian pharmacy and Canadian national health care and things like that. And I was always trained, I don't know, maybe it was just a response like, well, yeah, you might get free care in Canada, but you're going to wait in line for, you know, seven days to get your tonsils checked or something like that. When you talk about job diversity and security, and you say that you were in a governmental job, would that have been the same statement if you were in the U.S. working for the government? You didn't have less security because you were in the Canadian governmental job than the U.S. Is that true or not? I would say that would be true, that you would have the same level of security. I think they would be quite similar. But certainly the the um, medical system in Canada being a socialized medical system mm. does have a lot of differences to the U.S. And I think that's why when I trained in the U.S. Uh, that I was able to embrace a different mindset going into this business and going into this different area of my pharmacy career. So that was actually helpful having a lot of experience with the American type of medical system. 
when you said you trained in the U.S., what was the different mindset that you may not have gotten in Canada? What was the difference? I would say, you know, tying into what you said about the wait times. Um, so that is that is mm. one thing. And being there for patients in a very timely manner. So approaching a problem, evaluating, getting treatment going in a very timely manner for patients is something that is, um, I think, very different in the American system. And uh, I think that, that that has shown in my business to be very, very important. Uh, when, you know, we're, I'm dealing with fertility patients. So, you know, some of them have been waiting for years. And so to drag on their treatment for longer and longer periods of time is really frustrating for them and they want answers. And so they're able to get those answers right away. Um, so, so it certainly had benefit in that respect. Um, and, uh, yeah, here in Canada, people, depending on what it is, may be waiting for a long time. In your fertility care clinic, which we're mm -hmm. going to talk more about, by you spending some time in the U.S., if you only would have gained that experience in Canada, you might have thought, well, that's the way it's done. People wait, but maybe you have a competitive advantage because you spent more time in the U.S. system. Yes, I would say there's a, a competitive advantage that way by, by being trained. Um, and so I knew of resources that most people and a lot of the physicians in Canada didn't know about. One of the one of hmm. the big ones was um, getting assessed for um, endometriosis. Uh, Ten years ago, when I started, there were um, essentially no specialists in uh, in in laparoscopic surgery, and the. OBGYN who had trained me was uh, one of the world's leading experts in endometriosis surgery. So having that understanding and knowledge under my belt um, made a huge difference. And I was able to point people in the right direction uh, right from the start instead of, you know, waiting to come up with the answer from um, other healthcare providers that they that they were seeing. So yeah, it, it made a, a big difference. As you look now into the U.S. from your perch in Canada, do you think things in the U.S. have changed like in the last 10 years? Can you see the medicine getting closer to the Canadian system? And we've only focused on the negative, maybe more wait times, but have you seen it getting closer? Does it look more the same? Or as you look in, do you still say, nah, that's quite a bit different still? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is still quite a bit different, unfortunately. And in, in fact, there was an article that came out uh, in the media, I don't know, about 10 days ago. And it was talking all about substandard care that women were receiving with regards to fertility. Hmm. So the attitude is that we... In Canada. In, in Canada, yes. I would say that in the US, they also struggle with... Um, with some of these issues as well. We know that only about a half a percent of women um, have been helped by artificial reproductive technology. It's a very low number. Um, and 
and that they are struggling with substandard care. But I would say in Canada, because of our limitations with surgery and of course mm. with wait times and with not enough specialists trained in this area, we are um, in, a, in a bit of a worse position that way. We started off, you were talking a little bit about job security and diversification. When you went out to diversify, you picked up on something that was an interest to you. Absolutely. Um, I would say that probably every woman goes through certain things in her life where she's experienced problems with uh, hormonal changes, uh, with um, you know, you know, not feeling your best, feeling unhealthy. Uh, for me, I I did have struggles with uh, with miscarriage, with um, premenstrual syndrome, uh, and and they were things that. Um, I just thought my body had failed me. I thought that there was something wrong and I didn't realize that there was a physiological reason for it. And so um, I happened to um, find the right treatment. And uh, so I can really attest to the changes and the improvements that I had experienced because of that. And I think that is probably what gave me that realization that maybe this was an area I needed to focus on professionally because I understood what these women were going through. You were in your job with the government. Now you're doing your own thing. Did you jump across that river? Did you have a foot on both sides of the bank? How did you, <laughs> how did you make that leap if there was a leap? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. So um, yeah, I, I started off with my hospital practice uh, back in 2003. You were an employee in the hospital. That's correct. That's correct. Yeah. So, so my specialty was in drug information and, and poison information. So I started off um, there. Doing what? Did you have like the headphones set on? Were you an operator or were you roaming around the pharmacy helping people? <laughs> yeah. So, so in our department, it was, it was all a, a telephone based service. Oh, okay. Yeah. And so I was able to, to do that for a number of years before I decided that I would diversify. And again, one thing to, to keep in mind is that back when I was an undergrad, I had done some volunteer research in the, in the area of, of, um, uh, ovulation. Hmm. And so this was this was something that really fascinated me. And so when I decided to diversify, that was kind of at the at the back of my mind. You're sitting there, you're saying, I'm gonna diversify. But what pissed you off? What boss pissed you off or what did you hate at work that you said, I'm getting the hell out of here? There's had to be something. I'm not just going to give it to you that you had so much forethought thinking I'm going to do something else because in 10 years, this job may not be here. What really got to you? Uh, well, you know, I had a family that I was raising hmm. and I was working a, a casual position. And I think that the, that makes you a little bit vulnerable. You're always waiting and wondering, you know, how many shifts am I going to get? Am I going to be able to pay the bills? Is Is this something that will... Um, provide for me in the long term. And in fact, it did. Your salary wasn't where you wanted it to be or because you heard rumors of downsizing or just because of your own, putting it negatively, your own anxious thoughts. 
I think there always was a certain amount of uncertainty as to, you know, um, the amount of hours and um, having that stability hmm. um, in the department. Certainly, the wages were quite reasonable. I was happy in the department. Um, my team was awesome. But I think just that vulnerability of being casual staff and, and there being unknowns in terms of hours, uh, how many I would be receiving. You had a, probably a lot of outside pressure, a lot of responsibility, and it truly was just looking out. Yes. Yes, I was just looking out into the future and just uh, trying to be proactive um, in regards to my career. And I think always keeping in the top of my mind is, you know, is this where I want to be 10 years from now? Or is there something else I should be doing? Am I able to provide some other service? Is there something I really enjoy, something that I want to provide to to patients out there that um, is like, something that nobody else can can give to them. So I was, um, I think, always very self-aware and always willing to grow, hmm. uh, always willing to, to take a chance if there was something I was being called to do. When you say you feel called, do you feel it's a higher purpose calling you? Do you feel it's your internal engine doing this? Do you feel that society needs this? Obviously, you're not going to be doing this for free. I know it's going to be a business eventually. But when you say that call, what does that call mean? For me, it was a call to where, where am I best suited to be in terms of can I provide a service to somebody that they can't find anywhere else? You know, I'm replaceable as a drug information and poison mm -hmm. specialist. They can train lots of other people to do my job. But with the job that I currently do uh, with restorative fertility, that's really specialized. There are only a handful of us up in Canada that are able to provide this service. Uh, and so I just felt like I would be letting women down if I didn't take it on in a, in a much larger way. And so I think that's why I took the leap. You saw yourself in that down the road and you said, if I'm not there, I'm going to be missed. So you pictured yourself there before you even had it going. You said, they're going to miss me if I'm not there. Well, and I think that's because I had experienced what they were going through uh, years before. And uh, it, I, I would say, why can't somebody explain to me why this miscarriage happened? Why can't somebody explain to me what's going on with my hormones? Uh, wh where are the answers? And and so I just know that there are so many other women out there with those same questions, and I want to be able to help them. Let's go to the numbers. Don't give me dollar figures. Let's just talk percentages. Let's say you're making 100% of your income at your poison center. How quickly did you make that leap? Was it a percentage? Did you go down to 50% of this income and you worked part-time and then you started this? Or was there a, a zero phase in there? How quickly did you get up to where you needed to be 
in your new business then? That's a really interesting question. Uh, so as I was working casually uh, at the hospital, I was um, able to have a really great balance at home. And Casually meaning part-time? Yeah, part-time. So, well, part-time usually means that you have, um, you know, say you have a contract to work Monday, Wednesday, Friday for eight hours each, something like that. Whereas casual, what we would consider casual is that you are on, you're called in on a short-term um, basis, or perhaps you've been scheduled in ahead of time for a certain amount of shifts. So you try to fill in, you know, the sick calls, the vacation calls, that sort of thing. That must be a Canadian term. Casual? Maybe it is. <laughs> what would the U.S. call that? Like as needed, sort of? As needed basis? Yeah, or on call. Maybe on, on call. call. They would put a certain amount of shifts into my schedule. And so I always, you know, knew that I had some that were pre-booked, but then the rest of them I would just pick up. Pick up as you wanted to. As I wanted. You might look like two weeks down the road and you see some shifts and you're like, okay, well, no one's birthday is this day yeah. and things like that. And then you would put yourself in those shifts. Yeah, exactly. So it gave me really great flexibility as I was raising my kids. Uh, but the other thing that it gave me really great flexibility for um, was with with diversifying into this other area of my pharmacy career is that I could take on as as few or as many patients as I wanted to with it. And mm. so what it did over time since 2011 was um, it allowed me to grow my business at a pace that I was comfortable with and that didn't cause stress, didn't um, overstep my boundaries. And it, it worked out really, really well. And so I think that because I had been doing this for 10 years, when it came time to take the full leap and do it full time, I knew exactly what I was getting into. So I, you know, I realized that there are people out there who, um, you know, really take the bull by the right. horns and, you know, they don't have that transition. I had that, that transition that made it financially very easy um, uh, from, from a um, stress point of view, I guess. There was no stress involved. It was just, I just took each day as it came. And uh, I think that that uh, I knew when I was ready. I, I knew that this was the right time. How long was the transition from when you started to then when you kind of went full time? It was about a 10-year transition. And I think during that time, the other thing I was able to do was really get great experience. I, I saw, you know, over 500 patients um, and I, I was able to develop uh, a, a lot of great patient relationships. I was able to develop a lot of experience in the field and just um, I feel like when I when I did finally take the full time leap into this business that that I was for ready. I was ready for whatever was going to get thrown at me. And I think pharmacy is probably pretty well suited to that. And it might not come as smoothly as yours did, but I suppose in most cases, at least maybe up until a couple of years ago, and I know the markets maybe changed a bit, but, or some would argue a lot, but if you left a full-time pharmacy job, you could probably find 70% of that hours or 70% of the income, if they're not the same, filling in, doing stuff, you know, leaving 30% for that. So in some 
professions, you might have to go deliver pizza or something if you left your main job. But pharmacy offers a pretty nice part-time option, I suppose, to build something like that. Oh, absolutely. It's not just me. You know, it wasn't just sort of me in this specialized position where I was, I had the freedom to do that. I know that in the pharmacy profession, there are tons of people out there who work part-time hours. Maybe they work, you know, part-time in one pharmacy and part-time in another pharmacy. Whatever your employment experience is, you can make something like this work. And, you know, maybe that's a way that people can develop their business is, you know, to to do it in the same manner that I did, because then it gives them some comfort that by the time they're ready to make that that big decision, they're able they're able to do that. Yeah, I think people talk about being an entrepreneur and years ago the thought of an entrepreneur was more like a Las Vegas gambler, you know, where you threw it all there and then if you failed, you failed. And I think mm-hmm. I don't think a true entrepreneur is set up that way. I think it's somebody who's cliched, you know, Thomas Edison with the light bulbs. And I think, you know, it seems that you've got to have something that you're able to fail multiple times, yet still get to some end point, maybe not that specific end point, but an end point, if you define the end point as whatever you want out of your business. It might not look exactly the same, but you're going to have autonomy and some money and whatever. But you have to be able to fail through all that. And I think that kind of part-time stuff allows that. It really does. And you you quickly learn what works and what doesn't work. And you can pivot really easily. Uh, you can make the changes that you need to. Being able to pivot, especially now with uh, all this new invention, the computer and you know, but I mean, you know, years ago, the pivot wasn't so easy because you'd set up your storefront, you know, and you'd rent that for three-year lease and all that crap. One thing I would want to point out too is just 10 years ago, um, you know, I was doing a lot of online work. I was doing a lot of um, phone, like with my business, seeing people online over Zoom, talking to them over the phone. Yes. Um, And now, you know, post-COVID, we're realizing that being able to do something online is so much more accepted. And, and I mean, I was doing that 10 years ago, I was far ahead of the curve. And, and uh, so I think that having that was putting me at a lot less risk as well, because I didn't have a storefront, I didn't have a brick and mortar location where I, you know, if this didn't, um, work, it was going to be, um, you know, fin- a financial hardship. Uh, thankfully, um, one thing I did find was um, a pharmacy close to uh, where I was living was quite welcoming and having me come in and see patients in person. So that's where I got my start. It was actually, uh, you know, a, a fellow colleague and friend from a hockey team who said, why don't you, uh, why don't you think about you know, you're you're bringing your business over here and getting a start here. And it was a compounding pharmacy. So it worked out really, really well because I was able to utilize them uh, for their services. And I still do. Ten, ten years later, we have a very uh, tight professional relationship together. So, um, you know, I, I think the online opportunities that are out there are all the more reason why uh, pharmacists can start thinking 
of opportunities uh, that can work for them. Online stuff. Some people saw it as cool, but some people maybe saw it as a cheap way out. You know, why isn't this guy hopping on an airplane like his competitor did to come see me? And then within like a year that flipped to saying that out of the goodness of your heart, you're going to do something on video versus killing us in person kind of thing. Yeah, it wasn't seen as something that was unprofessional uh, post-COVID. Even, uh, even um, you know, I had to deal with some legal issues uh, with my parents. Uh, and, uh, you know, the lawyer got on the phone or got, got on Zoom with me and we were able to sign some papers and things right there over Zoom. So even the legal profession has, for example, done things that they never thought were possible. So I think it was a great opportunity for us to start thinking about what is possible. Those damn attorneys. Oh, here's the thing, Maria. <laughs> the reason people make jokes about attorneys is because they're attorneys. Nobody has like pharmacist jokes, you know, they joke about somebody that maybe they can't crack their world. But those attorneys, it's like in the past, if there was a, a meeting change, you know, or a court change or something like that, they would send you know, stuff out to anybody that's like part of the suit or something. And they'd send it out like on linen, you know, letters. I mean, I bet it costs like 300 bucks sometime for a, a hearing change or something. And now it's like, you know, you click on the email and stuff like that. They hate that sort of, but I think they've adjusted, you know. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's amazing how our professions have had to adjust uh, to all of this and uh, start thinking about ways to help patients that they never thought of before. So, Maria, what do you do then? What is your business? How do you actually make money? Well, let's start there. First, what do you do? And then how do you make money? Are you on a per event payment or is this a subscription thing or what do we got going? So with... Um advanced prescribing authorization here in Alberta, when you apply for that, what you have to do is show that you have some level of um, uh, expertise or training in a very specific area. So you are not required to get permission um, from anyone else in order to prescribe, prescribe. But of course, what's important is that you have those collaborative relationships um, in place. And, you know, um, professionally speaking, there are just um, important uh, ways of communicating with if there's another primary care physician involved or somebody else involved with their, with their care that, that you are um, communicating with them. You're saying you want to have a good relationship with the other primary yes. cares, but you don't need permission from them to do that. Right. How do they like that? Well, at first, the Alberta Medical Association came out very strongly against it, but the Alberta government here felt that pharmacists were, uh, you know, in a, in a very good position to be able to provide exemplary patient care hmm. and that they had the background training um, in therapeutics uh, to, to be able to take this on and help with saving healthcare dollars in, in the process. So Maria, when you go and you say, all right, I'm pretty good at this. It sounds like you don't need an official thing. You're just kind of giving them your, your pile of knowledge. You say, I think I have it. And then you say, I think I'm going to do these 10 medicines. There's nothing official there. You basically do it until they tell you to stop. 
well, uh, so, so yeah, I mean, with your training, you know what it is that you should or shouldn't be providing, what protocols to follow based on what they're coming in with. I'm not sure I agree with that because even in the U.S., there's some of these national organizations say you need the PGY stuff for this or that. And someone else is saying, no, a farm D degree is fine. And someone else saying, no, just a B farm is fine as long as you're all registered and things like that. So I'm questioning that. You're saying that it's scouts honor for the pharmacist to say, well, yes, here I have it, but who's agreeing to that? And I'm not saying anybody should agree to it because we're all adults and maybe we can make up our own minds. But you're saying that it's the pharmacist prerogative of what constitutes appropriate training? Uh, well, the, the, the pharmacy college would be looking at, yeah, what, what specific training do you have that would allow you to be able to prescribe in that specific area? So then you do have to prove your credentials and show that you are competent. Only afterwards? Only if you get in trouble? Only if you take it too far? Here's what I mean, Maria. So you say, I want to dispense these 10 medicines that the U.S. can't, but you're saying, I want to dispense these 10 medicines. Yes. Is there a certain certificate in that lane that you get? Or are you just saying, no, I've read enough books. I've studied it. I took some of my own self-appointed classes. I'm mm -hmm. good enough. Or is there mm -hmm. a very specific credential you have to get? Mm-hmm. Well, they don't ask for you to have a very specific credential, like they wouldn't set out criteria, you need to have this, this and this. Uh, but certainly when you apply for that authorization, you would have to show what it is you have. You're applying for it and then they make a decision based on what you've shown them. Yes. Gotcha. Yes, exactly. And then do they authorize a certain menu of prescriptions or is that kind of touchy feely? Uh, what they do say is that you should always feel competent in your area of prescribing. So for example, would I feel comfortable, you know, um, providing anticoagulant therapy to somebody? No. Would I want to um, start seeing a patient for cardiovascular related issues or or prescribing insulin to somebody? No. So that is not within my area of competency. So mm. I would never prescribe in that area. That would actually be quite dangerous and it would be irresponsible of me professionally. So what the college does is they leave it, they do leave it up to you um, as a pharmacist to say how comfortable, how competent am I in this area? And if I don't feel confident confident or competent, then I shouldn't be doing that at all. So I think that when I first got started in this whole field, it was why I took my training through a very specialized program um, in the US in Omaha, Nebraska under a hmm. um, uh, an obstetrician and gynecologist who is a fertility specialist and surgeon and who has been uh, training physicians, pharmacists, and nurse practitioners in the U.S. for the last 40 years. And so I felt that when I had that training under my belt that um, I felt very, very confident, very um, uh, competent in the area that I would be that I would be providing service. Uh, so, so it gave me, um, yeah, that full confidence knowing that what I was doing was providing a safe, 
a safe service to to my patients and one that would help them be, be successful. I'm always like fighting against myself. I guess part inside of me says that I'm going to take the widest or easiest way out. I don't think I necessarily do that, but part of me says that. Then the other part of me says, I wish there were rules that did not allow me to do that. You know what I'm saying? Yes. So without all the babysitters that the U.S. has, I'm thinking, what would I do? But I I think I'd end up okay. All right. So Maria, talking about the business plan. So I had asked about how do you actually make money? Let me go back to that question. How do you actually make money? Is it a per item thing? Is it a per session? Is it a per subscription? Right. Yeah. So of course, with this type of a program, it is something that is private. It's not paid for by the government. Let me back up one more step. Mm -hmm. The service we're talking about is you're helping women get pregnant who want to get pregnant? Well, that's part of it certainly is helping women to achieve pregnancy, but it can be for all sorts of gynecological issues. Mm. It may be single women who, you know, have endometriosis or polycystic mm. ovaries or something like that. So, so yeah, it's, it's a program that, um, um, you know, similar there are, there are programs in Canada where they're not paid for. I mean, you can't even get warts taken off without being charged or, um, you know, have have certain procedures done without being charged. So, um, you know, it's not like there aren't services in Canada with, that aren't paid for. You're saying the government doesn't pay for it? That's right. I know there's this idea that almost anything you want, you can get paid for. I got gotcha. you. Know, medically speaking <laughs> yeah, in, yeah. In, in Canada. And a lot is. A, a lot is paid for, but not everything is. And lots of times it can be things like cosmetic procedures so fertility, of course, is one of those areas that is not covered. It's not covered in the U.S. It's not covered here in Canada either. Gotcha. Um, so what I have done with my, with my practice is that um, we have these packages um, in, in our program. And so women will start to learn their fertility charting, which is a way for them to... Um, recognize certain biomarkers or signs that they have. And so that is um, a portion of our program that I can do myself, but I also have uh, practitioners that work with me who have also been trained by the same um, specialist down uh, in Omaha. Are they your employees or you contract with them? I, I contract actually, I subcontract out mm. to them because I try to focus on the treatment portion as much as possible, because I'm the only one who can really do that. Whereas I do have these more technical related um, portions of my program that can be done by other trained practitioners. And they are they are allied health mm. professionals, um, according to the certificate that, that they receive. Uh, so, so that's really helpful, actually, is that, um, you know, I can reach out to others in my business to help me so that I'm not bogged down. And great. Um, yeah, it's it, it really works well together. Um, so so we have these two different packages. One is is um, for the charting, as I mentioned, but the other one is um, when people start to get evaluated and treated in our program. And so, yeah, these are, um, they all have different things that are in, involved with them, uh, but but that's essentially how we break mm. it down and, and, and provide those services. And, and 
This is an opportunity for these patients to get a lot of support from us. We work together as a team, myself, the practitioner, and the patient. These women have to be um, active participants in the program in order for it to work Mm. properly. Uh, Because what they tell me about their health is um, it's my diagnostic tool, so to speak. Um, Now, although I don't diagnose conditions, it does give me insight as to where the problem may be uh, and and helps me to come up with a proper treatment program. So is this stuff online, Maria, or do you have people that are coming to your business? Prior to COVID, I had people um, seeing me at the clinic that I had set up uh, in a local pharmacy. That's right. We talked about that pharmacy there. Yeah. But I would even say, you know, I would say the first five years, I was seeing 50% of my patients online, 50% in clinic. Um, but then as COVID hit, I started to do 100% online. Mm. And that's what it has been ever since. Um, and it's worked out really quite well. I mean, they're happy that they don't have to go in and I'm happy I don't have to go in. It actually gives me more time to dedicate to what yeah. I'm doing um, rather than you know having to go drive somewhere. Or... Do you have any employees yourself? Yes. Well, you know, during the summer, I uh, I had a summer student. It was actually uh, my daughter who had um, learned part nice. of the business, so that was that was quite nice. Yeah, and so she had provided me help with that. But also, as I mentioned, I have um, these uh, six practitioners here in Canada who work with me that I am able to subcontract out to. I have, you know, the ability to really branch out and use way more practitioners. There are practitioners in the U.S. I can reach out to uh, and um, other practitioners within Canada. But and, and the reason for that is that we are all trained in the same standardized education mm. program. And so it gives that flexibility, I think, like no other training. Um, so it has really benefited me. Out of the stuff that you're doing then, it sounds like a lot of it's very efficient. A lot of it's online. Where do you see a seam breaking if it's going to break with your day-to-day stuff? Eventually, will you bring in computer people or accounting people or marketing people? Because right now, I imagine you don't have a big staff sitting there doing all those things. Those things have always crossed my mind. And of course, when you're in business, you're thinking differently. You're thinking about your brand. You're thinking, you know, if I if I bite off more than I can chew, I don't want my service to suffer. I don't want my brand to suffer. Uh, you know, what, what can I do about that? So I think that always being aware of, you know, what are my limits um, in in terms of how many patients can I can I treat? Do I need a wait list for something like that? I'm not at that point yet, but those are always top of mind. Um, also, uh, one thing that um, is a possibility is branching out and providing more and more of the charting services outside of Canada because um, I can tap into so many of the practitioners that are in the U.S. already and at least get that ball rolling for women and get them starting on that charting process. Whereas um, uh, in in the U.S., we are not limited by the number of trained pharmacists, physicians, or or nurses who are are trained in this area of um, fertility restoration. 
there's there's a lot more access down in the US. So uh, yeah, it's given me pause for reflection on all of that. Uh, but I think that um, always keeping in mind um, that service that you provide uh, to others, um, you have to keep keep that at top of mind. 10 years ago, you said you were going to look out and think about diversifying and protecting your future and so on. As you now look out one year or three years or five years, have you accomplished that? And do you still have that inside of you to say, no, I've got to keep diversifying? Or is there a point where you say, no, I did the diversifying. Now I actually have to complete this circle. I, I think that uh, I found where I need to be. Um, you know, sometimes I, I, I find that sometimes people get a little bit too, um, they spread themselves too thinly. They think, oh, there's this great new area of pharmacy I could try, or there's this I could try, or there's that that I could try. But I think for me, I found the area that I really love and um, and that I, I'm doing really well in. And people are, are very happy with the service that I provide. And um, so I, you know, I don't see myself going into another area. Um, I've found... Um, my calling in the pharmacy profession, I believe. Um, but I do see out there uh, that there are so many different options for pharmacists. I know um, there's there's all sorts of opportunities and it, you know, the, the sky's the limit that way, but you really have to find where you are best suited um, and, and where you're happiest. If you right now were talking to a bunch of pharmacists who are in the field for 10 years and they're saying, hey, I like what I'm hearing from Maria about diversifying and so on. Assuming that they're going to do that, follow their heart, what tangible advice would you give them for the next step? And let's say it's based on something like they want to do like you did as far as an efficient business and maybe a computer-based business and maybe somewhat of a consulting-based business, would they just copy exactly what you've done or what other advice would you give them to maybe do something similar that you did, but let's say not in the fertility space? Mm -hmm. Yeah. In fact, it was something that had been brought to my attention by a, a colleague of mine as well. Um, she she had thought that I was doing something really fantastic and she she had an interest herself in it. And uh, I said, you know, when you're ready to make that leap, start just thinking about all of the different areas, you know, research, just spend a lot of time researching on all of the, the different opportunities that are out there. You might find something that is is really interesting to you outside of what I'm doing with fertility. Um, and and I find that that's what happened, uh, you know, 10 years ago when I was starting off with this was that all the pharmacists were jumping on the travel, uh, travel clinic bandwagon. Mm. They were all doing that. They were all getting that training. And then all of a sudden, you've got 100 pharmacists who are all doing the same thing. Too many. And because they're not limited to their 
local brick and mortar, all of a sudden you've got 100 pharmacists that are trying to serve the same population across the country, basically. Exactly. So they're all competing with one another. Yeah. And uh, I just think that um, it's sort of uh, caterpillar thinking in a way that you're just sort of uh, doing whatever everybody else is doing. And really, you have to find your own path uh, into something that you want to do. And, um, you know, you'll be surprised once you start looking what you might find. And so I think um, just spending that time with yourself really researching is the first step. And, and, and then thinking about okay, now that I've found sort of an area I want to think about, how can I get training in that? Because you don't want to go into a training program where you're doing a weekend course and then, um, you know, trying to provide service to patients. You may not be able to come through and they may not have that uh, that success. Uh, so I, I would say that making sure that you can get the proper training, that you are very competent, competent uh, and qualified to do what you are doing. That's more of a medical training, not necessarily focused on the business yet. Yeah. Yeah. And it may involve that. I know there's a lot of people out there who do things like health coaching or pharmacy, you know, related coaching of some kind. And so perhaps you don't need a specific course to do something like that, but you do have to really think things through before you um, start off on your business. Um, I, I did end up uh, engaging with uh, some business people who are very, very successful. And I, I would ask them what works for them, what doesn't work. And they would give me a lot of really great advice on how to follow forward on, on my idea. You did that online mainly or? Uh, no, it was actually um, with uh, close friends of mine, family members mm-hmm. who, who were able to provide that to me. Um, so it was free advice, but I also started to, um, listen to podcasts. Ah, those podcasts are no good. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But you know, you are able, you know, if you just look at the podcasts that are out there, you can get some really great information, um, on some of these areas that will help you. And, and, and so there's, um, there's no a real secret to to what I did. I think I just started someplace. I started with something that was of you know real interest to me, somewhere where I knew uh, women would would get great satisfaction and success, and that would greatly improve their quality of life. So Maria, you started yours though in like a friend's pharmacy was that a business relationship from the start or did you say hey let me set up here for a week and see what interest there is what might another pharmacist do if they wanted to either take the route of going into a pharmacy or let's say they want to go into a maybe a health food store or maybe a fitness place and do something what advice might you give to them if they want to test the water that way uh, I would say that there's no limit as to where you can set up your business. You don't have to be in a pharmacy. Uh, for me, you know, I um, although this was a um, a friend that I had through uh, my son's hockey team, and 
I, I was actually brought in as um, a relief pharmacist for a little while. You're not going to sell the listeners of there being hockey teams in Canada. <laughs> They're not going to fall for that one. Yeah. So, well, I, I was brought in initially to be a relief pharmacist. And then when I when I had mentioned, you know, I'm, I'm taking this uh, this extra training in the area of fertility because um, his pharmacy was focused on um, integrative medicine and reaching out to all the different um ways of um, restoring people's health. Uh, what I was doing in fertility fit right into uh, what he was doing there. And so um, he said, well, you know, when you're done your training, why don't you consider setting up your clinic here and, and seeing how it goes. And so it was really an opportunity that I, I couldn't say no to because it, it gave me that, that confidence and that, that um, somebody who first believed in me and knew that it would work. Was that a financial arrangement or just a sit here and see what happens? Uh, there was a financial arrangement with it. So I would, I would pay rent uh, for the space, you know, similar to, I don't know, if you had a massage therapist who is mm -hmm. setting up shop in a chiropractor's clinic or something like that, you know, so or a hairdresser renting a chair or something like that. So that's what I did. Did you rent a physical space more than a table? Did you have a little room or anything or? Yeah, it was a, it was a, a consult room. And then you paid rent from day one, not even knowing what your success was going to be? Or did, did he let you test it a little bit? Well, uh, it, it was an arrangement that we had. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I could test it for as long as I wanted. Um, it was sort of a pilot project almost, I guess. But did he charge rent day one when you had no idea how well it was going to go? Well, he charged me rent, but you know, he was being pretty reasonable. And I think that he invested in me knowing that if this were to do me well, that um, it was it was good for his business too. So it was kind of a, a symbiotic relationship, right? Right. And so, yeah, it it continued like that for for uh, a number of years, and um, you know, uh, it worked out really well because it was a compounding pharmacy. As in addition to being just you know a, a regular pharmacy, he had that extra specialty, and so I was able to. Uh, also cash in on their expertise and get them to be able to provide me what I needed. So it it just worked out really, really well. Is that an ongoing relationship or is that done now? Oh, it's still an ongoing relationship because um, even though I'm not physically in the in the pharmacy anymore, um, my patients, um, you know, I they go to that pharmacy um, and. Um, you know, there there are a lot of people that I see from all over Canada uh, as well. And so they communicate with that pharmacy as well. Do you have a financial arrangement with them anymore? Uh, no, no. So I'm, I'm no longer in the clinic, you know, providing services in the clinic. Um, what ended up happening with COVID was that my space got converted into a vaccination room primarily. Oh, I see. So, so it wasn't a matter of me... Um, not being asked to go back, it was that this the space was just no longer available. They kicked you to the street. You just 
didn't have a choice. Well, yes, but at the same time, they knew that I was doing quite fine with my my online abilities. And so right. I, I, I think there was, again, that worked to our advantage because I was able to pivot and change according to the pandemic. And um, so since then, they've actually renovated uh, the, the pharmacy. And uh, and so I know that um, there's probably some opportunities, but I just haven't... Uh, uh, come full circle on that yet. I've been just focusing in on the online uh, yeah. at this moment. But uh, no, we we still have a very close uh, working relationship together. And, uh, you know, what's important is that the pharmacists who are there in that pharmacy, they know intimately what it is that I do. Yeah. And, and when they see... Um, how I'm approaching things they're you know, they get to understand how it works. And of course, right. you know, they, they get to see these patients from, um, you know, prior to pregnancy and all the right. way through pregnancy. And, right. and yeah. so it's, it's a very rewarding uh, experience for all of us. Maria, out of your work week, and as I understand it, you're full time now out of your work week, let's say you're spending 20% of the time doing this, 20% that, and so on. What part do you wake up and say, I don't want to do this part of it anymore. I can't wait till I can hire this out. What do you don't like doing so much? And what do you maybe wish you could do more? Yeah, that's a great question. I think I think the paperwork uh, is is probably the one part I, I like the least um, mm. because it has to be done. Um, and uh, there's just a lot of um, clerical tasks that I have to do on my own. So of course, you know, having my summer student available was super helpful. Uh, and, yeah. uh, and so, um, you know, now uh, I'm starting to see that kind of um, uh, part of my job in, increase. So uh, yeah, I'm looking out, I'm looking to hire uh, for that. Um there are things that that uh, should be hired out for that that are not good use of good use of my time. That comes. It does. It does. As long as you put a hat on that position, you're like, okay, that part of it right there, I'm going to hire that part. Yes, yes. So I think I have a really good awareness of what is it that I should be spending most of my time on. Where am I yeah. most productive? Where am I most useful? Uh, and so that is always an ongoing, I think, discussion. And uh, and and you can't be afraid to ask for help. You can't be afraid to hire people to do those sorts of things, mm-hmm. um, because I think that one of the things that really gets in the way of success is trying to do it all yourself. Right. And that's just not possible. And if you look at the people who are most successful out there, and um, and I, I don't just say that from a monetary point of view, I say, you know, how successful are they with, with their patients that they serve? Uh, they are people who are reaching out to others um, to mm-hmm. do certain things. And as I mentioned, with, with the fertility charting component of this program, uh, I am very, very fortunate in that I have such a great team to work with who um, who are always uh, able to take on that extra work for me. Uh, so I make sure that I reach out to them. What part really gives you life in your business that you would do more of, even if you didn't get necessarily paid for it right away? Uh, you know, I think I think that I like working uh, with my practitioners and training them and providing providing more education to them so that they can be better at what they do. 
Um, and I would also like to do more of um, patient outreach and providing, um, and I haven't done it yet yeah. really, but uh, I think providing opportunities for them to learn more. Um, I've tried to do that so far um, with some of the things um, that I've done, you know, through social media and stuff, providing them information, but I'm always looking at ways to um, to provide them that knowledge and understanding uh, that that they may not have and and providing opportunities for the public to learn about themselves. So um, yeah, I think in that respect with with teaching others, whether they're the public or my practitioners, always providing that extra layer of service um, or education is, is um, something I, I love to do. If someone said to you, Maria, what do you have to do to give yourself the most stability as a provider, let's say, to yourself and your family and so on, would you be able to just follow that route of saying you keep doing what you love to do or would you have to do something else to give yourself the most security. We already talked about that it wouldn't be necessarily diversifying mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. that can actually thin yourself out more. What actions do you see yourself responsible for in the business to ensure yourself to be a provider 10 years from now? Financial provider. Yeah, I think that for me, I was greatly successful when I went online. I didn't open up a website, if you can believe it, until this March. It's a nice website too. Oh, thank you very much. Um, I had it professionally done and I knew it that when good. I was going to do it, it was going to be done professionally. I did not want to do the GoDaddy website thing yeah. uh, on my own. Um, and so when I made that decision to go full time earlier this year, that was the first thing on my mind because I knew I had to get visible. I had to get out there. And I think probably visibility is going to be the biggest thing moving forward. But you don't want to just be visible. You also, you know, a, a, a reason why I was successful for the first 10 years was because of the brand and because of um, what level of service I was providing to others. Um, the trust that I was able to provide with patients, um, that human connection listening to people about what their concerns were because they weren't being listened to, they weren't being validated. Somebody was able to do that. And so what this led to was, you know, word of mouth. Hmm. And so, so I think that as I move on, you know, five to 10 years from now, as you said, how do I provide that stability is ensuring that I do make myself visible that I do get out there and show myself, whether it's through social media or continuing on with my website and, mm -hmm. and, and getting that, but always being aware that uh, the, the most important person is, is the person who's coming to see me and mm -hmm. always maintaining that level of care that I started off with on day one. Mm -hmm. um, so many businesses, I think they, you know, they, they start off so successfully at the beginning because they they go that extra mile they provide yeah, that right. that great level of service and then as it goes on it starts to water down and maybe you've got you know something has changed you become too busy yeah so i think that always for stability in the future is of course being visible but not 
not putting myself in a position where it's not going to be the, the same level of service anymore. Getting yourself out there visible, but then also listening while you're at it to make sure that, well, focused customer care, but also listening because that definition of customer care might change in the mind of your customers over the next five to 10 years. Yes. And, you know, medically speaking, there can be a lot of things that will change in, right. in five to 10 years. So always, I think, keeping up on what are the changes, changes, what are the improvements, what what are the options available for these people. Yeah. When I first started 10 years ago, as I mentioned, there wasn't a whole lot available in Canada for endometriosis surgery. Right. Uh, now, there's a lot more skilled surgeons in this area who were able to help my patients. And it is wonderful. It's actually meant um, a huge uh, improvement in, in success for these people uh, because of that availability. So Maria, someone's listening to this and they're pulling up in their driveway and they might have two or three minutes while the show's on their mind. What advice would you give somebody that they could do in two or three minutes to think about this issue of diversifying themselves? Uh, I would say start thinking about, you know, where do you want to be in a few years from now? What goals do you set for yourself? Do you want to be doing what you're doing now? Or, you know, are you happy with what you're doing now? What do you enjoy doing? What areas of practice uh, do you have a particular interest in? And start looking at what other people are doing. It doesn't mean you're going hmm. to copy them or do the same thing, but it is going to lead to um, different ideas for you. And just start somewhere. If you aren't moving, if you're you know standing still, you're not going to make any progress. You have to start moving. You have to get that momentum going in the right direction. And you'll eventually come up with some answers for yourself. Well, Maria, thank you. We'll be following, watching all the cool stuff you're doing. Great. Thanks so much. I look forward to seeing where I'll be five years from now. Hopefully not covered in snow. <laughs> you crazy Canadians out there. <laughs> all right, Maria, take care. Yes, you too, Mike. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. You've been listening to the Business of Pharmacy podcast with me, your host, Mike Kelzer. Please subscribe for all future episodes.